Welcome to Functional Theology with Pastor Chad Ashby of College Street Baptist Church. Coming to you from beautiful, autumnal Newberry, where it is currently probably 90 degrees outside and about 82 degrees here in my office. But we are here to talk about uh, our next missionary, our sixth, I believe, missionary of the series. And uh, I hope you're excited about what you've, we've been learning together. And uh, today we're going to be talking about John G. Payton, st his steeled conviction and courage. So with each of these missionaries, we're trying to see how their life highlights a certain thing, um, a certain virtue or aspect of what it looks like to be a missionary. In a lot of ways, these things are necessary for all Christians, but it's, it's amazing to see how these specific people evince these particular um, virtues or aspects in their own life to see how God was working in their life and then uh, trying to see how often what they were experiencing is very similar to what um, the saints of old in the Old and New Testament experienced and then the same thing really that many of us are experiencing in our lives. Let's get a few quick facts down about John G. Payton. First of all, the pronunciation of his last name, I actually looked it up because I've heard people say Patton because uh, the last name is spelled P-A-T-O-N, and I think in America we would say Patton. But for all I can tell, because he is from Scotland, um, it should be said Payton, like how we would spell P-E-Y-T-O-N, the way you would say that name. So John G. Payton, not Patton. He lived between 1824 and 1907. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. Do you know where those are? They are off the coast of Australia and New Zealand, the New Hebrides Islands. He was a member of the Scottish Reformed Presbyterian Church and obviously born in Scotland. So here's how his story begins. In the mid-1850s, a call went out to the ministers of the Scottish Reformed Presbyterian Church for a new missionary to be sent to a chain of islands off the coast of Australia. John Inglis pleaded for another to be sent to help him. So he was already there. He's pleading with his brothers back in Scotland. Send somebody else, claiming that on his island alone, 3,500 savages had thrown away their idols renouncing their heathen customs and avowing themselves to be worshippers of the true Jehovah God. None, zero, zilch, were found to answer the call. Their hesitation was understandable. Just a few years before, a couple of other Scottish Reformed Presbyterian missionaries by the name of John Williams and James Harris, who were the first two missionaries to the New Hebrides Islands, they had been eaten by cannibals only minutes after coming ashore. So, it was understandable why some people might have some hesitation about becoming missionaries to this lo remote location on the other side of the globe. News of that missionary call passing throughout the entire Presbyterian church there in Scotland came to a young inner-city church planter in Glasgow by the name of John G. Payton. At the time, he was running successful ministries to alcoholics, teaching life skills to poor women and girls, and holding worship services with upwards of 600 people in attendance on any given Sunday. Reflecting on his ministry, Peyton later wrote, 
My delight in that Bible class was among the purest joys in all my life, and the results were amongst the most certain and precious of all my ministry. He wrote those words after decades of missionary work, still reflecting back on the beautiful time he had in inner city Glasgow ministering and seeing a lot of fruit. Still, he could not shake the call to New Hebrides. Happy in my work as I felt and successful by the blessing of God, yet I continually heard the wailing of the perishing heathen in the South Seas, and I saw that few were caring for them, while I well knew that many would be ready to take up my work in Calton. The Lord kept saying within me, Since none better qualified can be got, rise and offer yourself. Patton immediately met with resistance from nearly everyone in his life. As he began to examine this call to the New Hebrides Islands, pastors, seminary professors, church members, all protested his leaving a successful ministry for the unknown. One dear old man named Mr. Dixon got right to the point. The cannibals! You'll be eaten by cannibals! This opposition seemed only to steal Patton's conviction. When he shared his plans with his parents, they revealed the truth. They said, When you were given to us, your father and mother laid you upon the altar, their firstborn, to be consecrated, if God saw fit, as a missionary of the cross. And it has been our constant prayer that you might be prepared qualified, and led to this very decision. Wow. He never knew. Since the moment of his birth, all the way up through his adulthood, they'd been praying for him that he would be empowered, made ready, qualified, and prepared to go into the mission field. Well, what, did, what, what was Patton to do? All these voices in his life telling him the certain destruction and death that lay ahead of him. I want to read to you from Acts chapter 21, because the Apostle Paul encountered very similar circumstances in his life. As he was headed uh, back to Jerusalem, let me read to you from Acts 21, verse 10. Luke writes, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. In coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people then urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For am I ready not only to be imprisoned? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Was Patton foolish to not heed all of the warnings of God's people telling him what might lay ahead of him in the New Hebrides Islands? I think sometimes it's important actually for us to recognize the danger, the truth of what may lay ahead, just like Paul. Uh, this prophecy, in fact, did come true, and yet he knew God was calling him to obedience. What excuses might you or other well-meaning Christians use to avoid the call to mission work? Your children might die. 
You yourself might die. You might be thrown in jail. It would be foolish for us to say these things aren't a possibility. The question is, are we willing still to go? Will we have the courage, the conviction that God is still calling us? Well, in April of 1858, Pat Peyton, at age 33, and his wife Mary sailed to the island of Tana. In November, they landed and built a home at a place called Port Resolution. Now, I don't know if they named it that or whether it was already named that, but what an apt name uh, for their the place they landed, Port Resolution. Certainly resolute in their desire to follow God's call. By March of the next year, so they landed in April 1858, by March of 1859, both John's wife Mary and infant son had died of fever. He dug the two graves with his own hands and put his family into the earth next to the house he had built. He says, quote, The ever-merciful Lord sustained me, and that spot became my sacred and much-frequented shrine. During all the following months and years, when I labored on for the salvation of the savage islanders amidst difficulties and dangers, but for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed to me there, right there at the graves of his wife and son. I must have gone mad and died beside the lonely grave. Resolved to continue, he labored alone on the island for four years on the island of Tana, under constant threat of his life. The threat of attack kept Patton on red alert at all times. He writes in his autobiography about how he slept in his clothes. He had a dog named Clutha, that he kept by his side at all times like an alarm system who would give a sharp bark to awake him at the sense of danger. He writes, My enemies seldom slackened their hateful designs against my life. A wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket and, though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith, and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow. And they did tread swiftly one upon each other's heels. (laughs) That's a a very positive way of putting it. These trials and near-death experiences, he says, they were treading swiftly upon one another's heels, coming quickly in, in swift succession. The attacks on Patton's life, Peyton's life were numerous. Once a sick man called him to pray over him in bed. When he leaned over to lay hands on him, the man drew a knife and put it to his heart. For some reason, his hand turned and thrust the knife into a stalk of sugar cane beside his bed. Peyton ran the entire four-mile trek home, praising God for saving his life. Upon another occasion, Peyton awoke to find his house surrounded by armed men intended on putting him to death. Resolving to step out of the house to his certain doom and committing his life into the hands of God, he confronted the crowd. He writes, Rising, I went out to them and began calmly talking about their unkind treatment of me and contrasting it with all my conduct toward them. At last, some of the chiefs, who had attended the worship, rose and said, Our conduct has been bad, but now we will fight for you 
and kill all those who hate you. Not quite sure that's what Peyton was aiming for, but it's an amazing turn of events. All of these attacks happened in the mere four-year span that Peyton was alone on Tana. Here's one more story. Once, when natives in large numbers were assembled at my house, a man furiously rushed on me with his axe. But a Kasarumini chief snatched a spade with which I had been working and dexterously defended me from instant death. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not, for one brief hour, when or how attack might be made, and yet with my trembling hand clasped in my hand once nailed on Calvary, and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. I want to read to you again from the book of Acts how the apostles responded whenever they were threatened, whenever they were beaten, whenever they were attacked. This is from Acts chapter 4 and verse 1. As the apostles were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now skipping down to verse 13. Now when the chief priests and the Sadducees saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have heard and seen. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. What was the source of boldness for Peter and the apostles and for John Payton? Well, he speaks about how in all of these circumstances he had to cling to the Lord Jesus. Even though he didn't know maybe in the next hour that an attack might be made and his life brought to an end, he knew that in his hand was clasped the hand of the one who had conquered Calvary itself and who now, Peyton says, sways the scepter of the universe. And that brought a great peace and resignation into his soul. When the apostles were threatened with death if they continued to preach in the name of Jesus, here's what they did. They went and they prayed. They prayed with their brothers and sisters in the church. They asked the Lord to give them boldness in the Holy Spirit to continue to speak the word of Jesus and trusting that Jesus would stretch his hand out and perform many signs and more wonders to show that he had all authority in heaven and on earth. That's in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 30. Let me read to you how 
the Lord responded to their prayer. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There it is. That's the steeled conviction. That's the courage that we see on display in the life of John Payton and the life of the apostles. I wonder whether you see that in your own life. Do you pray in times of fear and doubt, in the face of possible persecution? Do you turn to the Lord for endurance, to trust that what you are doing in proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus is what you must continue to do? And I wonder whether that boldness will take you far, far away from your friends and family, even to the other side of the globe. Well, after four years in Tana, Peyton was forced to leave the New Hebrides Islands. He spent his time in Australia and Scotland raising funds to buy a sailboat for the mission and eliciting for more missionaries to join him. In 1864, he married Maggie Whitecross, and the two of them returned to the New Hebrides Islands. This time, they landed on the island of Anawa, an island of only 14 square miles where John and Maggie would serve together until Maggie's death in 1905, 41 years later. Wow. 41 years of ministry together. The experience on Anawa was like night and day compared to Tana. The natives who once practiced cannibalism, widow sacrifice, and infanticide began to turn to the Lord in droves. Peyton writes about the spiritual bondage among the people. Quote, Their worship was entirely a service of fear, its aims being to propitiate this or that evil spirit to prevent calamity or to secure revenge. They deified their chiefs so that almost every village or tribe had its own sacred man. They exercised an extraordinary influence for evil, these village or tribal priests, and were believed to have the disposal of life and death through their sacred ceremonies. They also worshipped the spirits of departed ancestors and heroes through their material idols of wood and stone. Their whole worship was one of slavish fear. And, so far as I could ever learn, they had no idea of a God of mercy or grace. Well, despite this pagan idolatry and worship, nevertheless, Peyton set out to learn and transcribe the language of the Anawins. He and his wife built orphanages for unwanted children. He says, we train these young people for Jesus. Maggie Payton taught classes of women and girls how to sew, sing, make hats, and read. They taught the, nat the natives how to teach and expound the scriptures. They held worship services on the Lord's Day and trained new believers to take the gospel to their villages. By the end of 15 years of ministry, Payton could confidently proclaim that the entire island of Anawa had converted to Christianity. I claimed Anawa for Jesus, and by the grace of God... Anawa now worships at the Savior's feet. Peyton would go on to publish a New Testament in the Anawan language in 1897. His autobiography would be published the following year. His life stands as a living testimony to spirit-inspired boldness and courage in the face of great odds. He says, quote, Oh, that the pleasure-seeking men and women of the world could only taste and feel the real joy of those who know and love the true God, a heritage which the world cannot give to them, but which the poorest, humblest followers of Jesus inherit and enjoy. 
As we close, I want to read to you from Romans chapter 8. This final quote from John Payton reminds me of the words of Paul, beginning in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If that is true, friends, if that is true, then we can take the gospel to the nations with great steeled conviction and courage. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Functional Theology. You can always find my uh, podcasts. You can find my writings, my articles uh, at chadashby.com. You can also follow my author page, Chad C. Ashby, on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at Chad underscore Ashby. And until next time, I hope you enjoy thinking and pondering, and I pray the Spirit works in your heart to to discern His desire for you in the kingdom of God and taking the gospel to the nations. Until next time, this has been Functional Theology.